0: Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. To another episode of Vertical Momentum. My name is Richard Kaufman, also known as a Comeback Coach. And guys, this is an episode you're going to want to listen to over and over again. This is my favorite subject of all time. But first of all, I just want to say thank you to our sponsors as you guys know, when I was in the military, I got hooked on energy drinks, and when I first started going to AA 32 years ago, they served the worst tasting coffee ever, so I got hooked on coffee also. So my my friend has a company, it's like an energy drink and coffee company put together called Get Shit Done Coffee, truly amazing, check them out. Guys, this is going to be a great episode, it's very near and dear to my heart, um, I've been clean now- over 32 years, and uh, it's 124 hours at a time. And I just want to welcome my brother, Brock. Welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing? What's going on, Richard? How are you, man? Congratulations, brother. 32 years. Yeah, I guess I'm what they call the OG. So, you know, but, you know, as we all know, you know, we're just one drink away or one stupid move away from, from going back to day one and I ain't going back there, brother. No, no, that that's impressive. You know, what's interesting, Richard,
1: there's not a lot of guys hanging out in these rooms with 32 years of sobriety.
0: And, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful and I'm very humble, but you know, one thing I am is I'm very, and I, and I'll be always the first to admit that I'm afraid to go back to day one. So, you know, like I have to really, you know, like even when my wife bakes cookies, she cannot use the regular vanilla extract because it has alcohol. And, you know, I have to try to um, foolproof as much as I can. You know what I'm trying to say? Oh, man. One hundred. So I'm just grateful for you to come on, brother. Um, this is an open conversation, just like two brothers having, you know, because when I went to the meetings, you know, when I, I got sober at 20 before most people even started. And uh, I I sat down and I was scared and I was crying and I was still drunk. And the guy sat me down and it was a bunch of old guys. And they said, you know, just sit down, shut up. You know, like the old guys used to do, uh, get to the meeting a half hour early, stay a half hour late because that's when the real meetings begin. So it's just for me and you, it's going to be like two brothers just hanging out after a meeting. So how are you, good
1: I'm, I'm super excited richard to talk about this uh you know i i know you're you've been in the military you're past veteran you're past law enforcement so i think our, our brains match in the middle we understand uh, the trauma that comes with our professions and the addiction that's associated with it and that stigma that it brings
0: yeah you know because i remember like when i was well not all my time but some of my time in the military you know, whenever we get we would get done with a mission, you know there was always a bar, and I know like there's always a bar in every almost every town that is called they call it the police bar where all the officers go after shifts. And that's where they go to hang out, and they don't. And there's like there is that thin blue line, and there's also that you know thin green line that a lot of soldiers will only talk to other soldiers, and I and I think the same things with the with the the police department correct.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that would be a time for us to to build rapport with each other. You know, after shift, like you said, after the meetings, that's where when it really
0: begins, when it gets real. So, you know if you don't mind going into your past a little bit, this way we can, you know, get to know who you are and then talk about your experience, your strength and your hope.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, like I said, you introduced me, Brock Bevel. I am a retired police officer, but I don't ever think I take the badge off. You know, I think we're, I, I, I actually, I know, I feel like I'm just, just started another career. That thin blue line goes deep. But you know, I'm, I'm from Scottsdale, Arizona, was raised in a, in a, in a good family, uh, grew up always wanting to be a police officer. I tell the story where my dad, I didn't know that he was a police officer. He worked in the same town I did when, when we were youth and he had gotten out of the profession when we were little, he wanted to become a, an educator and a coach. And so I was going through his closet one day and I saw this bag, this, this suit draped in a, in a bag. So I pulled it out and there's his, his police uniform. And I remember the badge on the uniform and he had those old school hats that still had the badge on top. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. And, 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 uh, I remember pulling it out and putting that thing on. I mean, it's draped all over me. But I, I, I looked in the mirror and I was hooked. That was all it took. You just put that uniform on, and I was hooked, you know. And I, and I, told my first grade teacher I'm gonna be a police officer, you know. I, knowing now, I wish someone would have said, "Hey, you should be a firefighter," you know, because they're they they're they're definitely more loved. Um, they definitely have a, a cooler. Uh, shift makeup than we have, you know, 24 hours on, you, you know, the deal 48 hours. And I felt like we were always grinding as police officers. So I got on in, in uh, early 1994, huge test um, where, where everybody wanted to be a cop. You know, I showed up at this big facility and we took the written exam and there were 500 and something people that
0: your phone probably went to lock. So that's why you're, we're muted. So if you can hear me, you just have to unlock your phone. Yep. I'm here. Okay. So there were 500
1: people for the test. Yeah. There were 500 people testing for seven positions. And you know, I had one shoe in, I was lucky. I spoke and speak fluent Spanish. And this was a time in Mesa where it was kind of shifting. We were having a lot of, uh, national's moving in. And so I think uh, the department was really trying to find some Spanish speakers. I'm Caucasian speaking Spanish. You know, I could infiltrate, I could get in and, and it was just, it was a cool, uh, cool vibe. And so I tested, went through the process in 1994, in January, they called me up and said, Hey, would you like to become a Mesa police officer? And I was, I mean, I, I remembered how excited I was. I'm like, I got a career you know, I got a 20 year career that I will put in and then, you know, I'm going to be 50 years old and I'm out. And so I loved it, you know, and I moved around a lot in the department. I was pretty blessed because I did speak fluent Spanish uh, because I specialized in street crimes. That was my kind of my loved it. And and I got. I was blessed. I went and worked some narcotic details. I worked uh, undercover on our bike team, uh, just so so you know the the basic two years in patrol. Um, but I I felt like I was in the in the TV show Nitro Circus. You know that's how I try to compare my job. I felt like every day we were just running and gunning, and then you know we'd go home and 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 try to relax.
0: And, you know, a lot of people, you know, like I said, I was in the military for over 20 years and they don't understand that, you know, um, that rush, you know, it's kind of like I was a tanker, you know, I would be able to shoot vehicles four miles away, you know, and and I'm using 50 caliber round, you know, so it, it was a big adrenaline rush. And then when you get home, it's like, all right, now what? You know what I mean? So I, I could totally get where you could come from that high, high, high. Like I got a friend, you know, m- one of my best friends, he's a police officer, or retired now. He just retired. Um, he said, you know, he would come home, and he was married at the time, now to divorce, that he would come home from like a quadruple homicide. And, you know, your wife asked you, well, how's your day? Uh, I can't really tell you. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I can't go into details. A lot of times he said he had to keep that stuff... Into himself and that's I think that's When the demons started to come out Was that same thing with you? Yeah you know that's an
1: interesting take Because people don't understand because we love our Wives we want to share with our wives And there's there's things that we Want to tell them but we Don't want them to have to carry A quadruple homicide Yeah because We're not good We're we're really good At storytelling so we have to give All the details yeah Right. We have to show the gunshot wound that was opened and filleted open and there was blood dripping out. And I mean, we got and then all of a sudden we step back and said, damn, I just told my wife that.
0: Yeah.
1: And now she she has to carry that around. So that's a that's a super difficult uh, task. And, and it was. And I believe that's kind of what led to my demise in in 2000. Uh, man, I'm going to get some dates on January 20, December 27th. I was in a shooting Um, two days after Christmas. A a gentleman was on US 60, was flying, fleeing from the police department and uh, a pursuit happened, right? It was a DUI task force checkpoint and he flew through it and he was he was evading the police. Long story short, he turns into a cul-de-sac and we do we fan out, do a felony stop on him. So and this is where I really wish people could see what police officers go through. Uh, a lot of people think we have this unlimited amount of time to process information, right? That a lot of these shootings that are happening, a lot of these stabbings, a lot of this stuff going around in the nation is based on, on less than seconds. Right. And it was the same kind of situation with this guy, which, but, but this one, we were blessed. It took a little bit longer. He was in a, in a big, um, pig, tr- fi- uh, old school pickup truck. We locked him into a cul-de-sac. He got out, confronted our, our tack team. And, and, and we did everything possible on the use of force, right? Officers can't just jump to, uh, killing somebody unless there, there's a threat against them. But this guy got out with a knife. So from long range, we, we shot him with the beep, BB- you know, with the, with the, uh, a, a gun, uh, a, um, beanbag round hit him twice in the ribs didn't affect him the canine bit him twice didn't affect him we tased him didn't affect him pepper sprayed him didn't affect him and we're like oh my gosh like i wish the news outlet could watch this it was it on pcp right. uh he was no nope he was just straight alcohol and he was just it, wow. it, I, yeah what zero effect and, and i know there were other um drugs on board but nothing was affecting him, and then he gets back into his truck, and puts it in drive and comes at us. And so I, I shoot him through the windshield, hit one shot in the chin. Follow up shot was under the collarbone. And and what's interesting is the anger, the anger that I felt. I remember uh, I didn't like you said I didn't understand a lot about addiction. I didn't know there were AA halls. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about addiction. I was raised in a pretty religious structured home where I had addiction, but I didn't know it was an addiction, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And and I'll and I'll kind of share with that in a second. But I remember pulling this guy out of the vehicle and him laying on the ground. And, you know, he's, he's, shot, he's dead. And here I am. And I know that I, at two days after Christmas, I just removed someone from their home. I don't know if he had kids. I don't know any of that at this time, right? It was just super difficult. I'm like, what is it about this drug or alcohol that makes somebody do some incredible acts they wouldn't do if they were sober? You know, two months two months later, I get subpoenaed to a deposition. I'm sitting with his mom, his dad, his sister, his attorney, my attorney. We're in this room, and after the deposition's over, the mom asks, "Hey, Brock." can I ask you a question? And my attorney, of course, is like, hey, if the deposition's over, you don't have to answer it. But I'm like, hey, I'm a parent. I'm a father. I want to help this lady understand. And the question she asked me, I didn't know the impact that was going to have. She asked me, if you had a chance to do it again, would you kill my son? Ooh, that's a deep question. That's a difficult question to handle, right? And And now you're having to give an answer to the guy's mom that you've killed. And I remember the difficulty that I was going through. Like, do I, you know, do I tell her what she wants to hear or do, am I truthful? Mm-hmm. You know? And so I remember sitting back and I just, I, I took a second to answer and I said, based on my training, based on, on where your son put the situation, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I would have to, that would, I had to do my job. And that was when I understood the the concept of ownership. You know, we, we make these decisions in our lives, but where is the personal ownership to this? Like, he didn't have to own anything. I did. I'm carrying that fact now that I shot and killed him. Right? He doesn't have to. So by the actions caused by this other individual now has affected me. If that makes sense. And so that's where we get the PTSD. That's well, you where
0: know, we get. And I, I totally get it, you know, because um, there's a gentleman I interviewed you know, um, last year. His name is Clint. Clint Lawrence. And he was the one that was um, Donald Trump um, got him out of jail. And for uh, he actually had to make that's a same decision as you are. You know, there, there was a truck coming to a checkpoint. And he, it was either him or them, them, and he had to make that decision in a split second. And unfortunately, that decision in that split second, whether it was right or wrong, still haunts him to this day. So I get what you're talking about is, you know, and, you know, I like I said, my best friend's a police officer. My, my whole uh, family, we bleed blue. Uh, my daughter was actually a, um, a police officer for uh, Halloween a couple of years ago. So we are totally, totally back the blue hundred percent. But a lot of times if you're, if you don't know people that are in the blue, you never understand what they go through. And most people that don't know that, you know, like one of my friends, we, we might be uh, friends on, on LinkedIn. His name is Michael Seguru. You oh know, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm great friends with him. And a lot of people don't realize that most police officers, when they get killed, it's usually because of domestic, and it's, it's usually on a domestic call, and it's usually the other person that they're trying to save is the one that shoots them. So, I, you know, I, I, and nobody ever really thinks about that with the with the police department. You know, well, you know,
1: you you hit it right there. Is like you don't people most people don't understand what we go through, but they also don't understand what we see, and the amount of what we see, if that makes any sense, like how many, how many dead bodies do most people see in a lifetime? Right. And, yeah. and this is, and, 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 and granted, I understand this is a decision we make to do this, but someone's got to do it. Right. And And so what we see, how about, how about all the all the destruction that we see caused through drinking or drunk driving. You know, how about, how about the family that just got killed because a drunk driver
0: went through a a red light and killed them? You know, know, like I said, you know, I'm very big. I'm a, I'm a big mental health advocate. um, And most people don't realize, you know, like the average male in the, in the United States, dies uh, about 78, 79 years old. But the average police officer or corrections officer don't live past the age of 59. Right. Think about that. That's a 19-year difference because of the stress that these guys are, that guys and gals are under. And they really some t- don't talk about it until it's too late, you know? Well, and, and that's what I hope
1: that we can discuss, Richard, yeah. is... Um, this mental illness thing. Let, let me share with you one more one more story so I can kind of give you a foundation. Um, just, just fast forward about three months after uh, I was in the shooting, I was run over, okay? I was run over by a lady who was prostituting her daughter, her 12-year-old daughter, in exchange for sex, in exchange for drugs. So mom shows up on the scene is going to trade her daughter for drugs to a man. Okay, now let's think of that, right? So as police officers, a lady tells us about this, a confidential informant, we get there, we infiltrate the scene, we watch the scene go down. Okay? Mom shows up, daughter's in the passenger seat, drug addict, drug dealer drives up next to him, pulls up on his bike next to him, starts to do a hand-to-hand transaction, Goes to open the door. We in you know we we get involved. Mom doesn't want to go to jail, so she decides to throw her car in reverse and run over two police officers. Okay, my right foot gets caught, break my ankle. She hits the inside of my knee, blows my knee out. And in the in in the end, we were able to arrest her and take her to jail. All right, but the effects that she caused that day on her daughter on two police officers in this community was what people don't understand Like that's and for for me that's where my mental i want to call it mental wellness but my my struggle began here i am run over rehabbing for a year to try to come back to work the department the department finds me um, unstable my body unstable enough to return to work i'm a liability right before this accident I was perfect but because of the accident my knee couldn't get fixed well enough the department could not feel comfortable about putting me back on the streets because of the nature of my injuries so they retire me so like you said at the beginning of this of this information of this this interview um, you know it's a high end job you feel like you're in Nitro Circus and then you go home I had young children now I'm playing dad changing my kids diapers and and doing all the grocery shopping and driving around. And that is no offense to the the people out there that do that,
0: but I wasn't used to that. Okay. Now I have a question to ask um, because I got hurt on duty and I don't know if you know it, but I'm, I'm, I'm blind. So um, not only did I lose my vision, but then I lost my career and everything was built up to being Sergeant Kaufman. That was my whole persona. That was everything. And then when they finally took the uniform away, I didn't know who Richard was. So talk to us about that transition period. The most brutal transition I've ever had.
1: Because probably like you and most of us, my ego... My machismo, who I was as an individual, is wrapped up around me being a cop. Now, not even a, just a cop, but I, I was an undercover cop for a while. You talk about you're at a whole nother level, right? And, and people want to talk to you. You are important. Um, you are important. And so they want they to pick your brain. Hey, what's going on? What do you see? And you're the guy. And then now you don't have those stories anymore. And you cut your hair and you take your earrings out and you go back to work, you know, and now they've taken that from you. The hardest day of my life so far, well, next to a divorce, was when I walked into the police department, I sat in front of the board and they said, you are no longer an officer for the city of Mesa. We need you to bring all your gear and turn it in. Hey, thank you for your service. You're still going to get retirement, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're still part of the thin blue line, all that stuff. But I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. And so the next day I remember going in there and inventorying all my gear that I'm returning. And I gave them my keys. Everything was fine until I gave them my keys. And I remember thinking, damn, I can't come back here. I'm like every other John citizen where I got to walk to the front door, see the secretary. They got to call my guy, buzz him down. But yet a week ago, we're kicking in doors together.
0: And I get it, you know, because it was like when I was in the military, you know, I never showed my driver's license. I would just pop out my military ID and it was like it was gold. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. I'm just John Q public right now. You know, it's like I'm no longer the man. Like you said, I'm no longer the man, the myth and the legend. Now I'm just a regular Joe. And where do I go from here? I got to rebuild my life. How do I do it? You know? Yeah.
1: And and Richard, what what was even worse was now, not only am I not a cop, but I'm a broken cop. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm broke. I'm still trying to recover. And I have all these like mental issues going on. I'm 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 effed up in the brain. I can feel it. I had just had. I keep having surgeries every time I go to the doctor. I get refills on my opioids, and I began to self-medicate myself on my opiates. As the more I took of them, the better I felt.
0: Yeah, but you know, and I, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm a big. I'm in, big in the recovery space, and um, it's amazing how many people we lose every day to opioids, and ninety percent of it was all started with a doctor's visit. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: Richard. My doctor told me this. This is this is verbatim. I promise you, this happened. I went in front of him. I had I had been in a in a foot pursuit earlier in my career, blown my knee out. Had the same doctor, he did two surgeries on it, rehabbed me, and I got back to work. Okay, it was a it was an ACL tear cleanup type situation. I believe we had to go in the second time and clean it up. So I'm back to work. I remember the doctor looking at me and saying, You're you're not gonna get addicted to this stuff because you're a cop.
0: Yeah, that's just no. a answer. <laughs> yeah.
1: no. I'm thinking, okay, and and, and because I had not experienced addiction. Now, I experienced working in the field of narcotics. I knew what they did to people, but I didn't have a direct
0: correlation. Now, I got a funny story. You know, it was like, like I said, who knows where this conversation is going? It's just like two brothers having a cup of coffee. I had to go for a procedure um, let, let, last month or the month before. And I tell the doctor, listen, I'm in recovery. I'm like, you're not giving me anything pain related. And so the, the guy that does, you know, the, the guy that knocks you out, he's like, Oh, so you want some fentanyl? I'm like, no, <laughs> oh, so, you know, slow the roll. Didn't they just tell you that I'm in recovery? I can't have any of that stuff. And I had to keep telling them to keep, you know, they're telling me, Oh, you're going to need these op- opioids for pain afterwards. I'm like, no, <laughs> do you not understand? I don't think even the people that are involved in the profession doctor's profession don't understand the people that don't because i guess there's so so many people that go there just to get the opioids it's pretty rare when somebody says no i don't want any of it you know what i mean yeah you you know what i didn't realize
1: is i didn't know how well the opioids mass my mental wellness you know like you said that struggle between being an active police officer, now retired, bum, right? And when I said I was taking more opioids, I was taking them more because I noticed it masked the mental pain. I mean, sure, did I have did, Was I in physical pain? Sure, I had surgery, so I could articulate that. But the, it quashed the mental noise, it quashed the fact that I was not a police officer. It it crushed and quashed my uh, depression, my sadness. Like Here I am a week ago working with these guys and no phone calls, no messages. Nobody stopped by my house to check on me. I'm retired. So the day I retired, I had maybe one or two guys text me and say, hey, man, we'll miss you or anything. And so that right there was... I noticed that my opioid helped that. And so I just started taking more and the more I took, the better I felt
0: until, you know, know, I go ahead for what you're saying, you know, you know, like one of my friends, his name is Nick, you know, in the military, it's kind of like, once you step off base and I try not to curse on my my show, but there's no way I can get it across for people that are listening. Once you step off base, or, you know, the military no longer gives a shit about you. Your mission is done. The phone will, will stop ringing. Um, you won't, and you are like you never even existed. So I totally understand where you're coming from. Because your phone probably just stopped, correct? Dead.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I believe that difficulty can, comes. And, and you, you you definitely understand this is we create this bond. We create this brotherhood that we're going to, no matter what, we're we're coming out alive. We're going home. We're never dead, right? Because we have such amazing people around us. And we bleed for each other. And we work for each other. And we, we take on each other's burdens. We know each other's home life. And who's going through a divorce. And who's struggling with all this, right? We know that because we see these guys well enough in action and then when it happens to you and you don't have that team anymore you start questioning like what was was that real like that brotherhood crap that we talk about is that real or is it just
0: when it's convenient i and like i said you know i'm so i'm so down with that because i I tell everybody, you know, that guys that I talk to, same thing, you know, like um, some, you know, if you're, if you're Sergeant first class in the military, once you hit the streets, you're nobody and you have to start all over. So how did you, because now you all of a sudden, okay, you don't have a, a career anymore. And even though the medication made you feel good for a little while. Eventually, it became a bigger problem.
1: Yeah, 10 years
0: worth. So talk to us about that. Talk to us about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was 10 years, man. Like, you think about it. shit. My my opiate addiction was longer than my police career. So I became super proficient at it because as a narcotics officer, you learn how to be maniacal. You learn how to lie and cheat and steal. You learn that. And so nobody but one probably one of my best friends was aware of the extent of my opioid use. Right? I, Cause I because w- I was, I was very hidden on it. Ten years, 10 years. Okay, that's what that's what I hope I can get across. Is it took me and I could not gain control of it.
0: I lost you a little bit. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, brother? We got disconnected somehow. You might have got a phone call. So, um, guys, if you're listening to this, man, this is real talk. You know, this is somebody that struggled for 10 years struggling with opioid addiction. My struggle was only seven or eight years, and then I had to struggle with the mentality for over 30 years. Are you there, brother? Can you hear me? So like I said, you know, this guy, you know, went from being a, a claimed police officer doing undercover work to now being retired at a young age, having to deal with this opioid addiction now. So you were <laughs> so you were struggling for 10 years with this opioid addiction.
1: Right. Uh, I'm sorry about that, brother.
0: No, so, uh, hey, if that's the worst thing that happens to us today, it's uh, <laughs> if we're doing pretty damn good. Yeah, brother.
1: So, so yeah, well, like I said, I, I went into my, my medicine cabinet, took an opioid. I was living alone, was divorced, struggling. And opened the cabinet up, took it, shut it like a normal day. And when I shut that, the glass looked into my my the the window shined into my my room. And it gave me a second of desperation. And I realized my rock bottom. It was the moment I looked in my room and said, You're a crackhead, man. You 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 live in a crack house. Look at this. And it was a disaster. My room was a mess. And out of anger, A-type personality, I ripped open the glass, opened my medicine cabinet, grabbed all of my pill bottles. And let me just make sure you understand this. Each one of my pill bottles had exactly how many more I had in there. It was organized to the pill. But yet my house was in disarray. And I'm like, bro, you, you have an issue. Dumped all of my pills down the toilet and then that was the biggest mistake in recovery people are like oh that was your that was your rock bottom no that was a horrible decision to if i would have had a scuba diving equipment and i could have fit down those toilet pipes i would have i would have jumped down in and recovered all i could have you know at that point i wouldn't have cared what was on it and so i took that time to realize okay stop you can't fill any more pills up you're out of pills you did it because you wanted to stop, man up, and get over this. This is your pivot point. This is your opportunity to change. And so I spent seven days in that bathroom. I spent seven days withdrawing, detoxing, the worst pain. Like I tell people, I would rather be run over and have my knee blown out again and have multiple surgeries than ever go through another seven days of.
0: A detox. Worst pain I've ever had. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, and I'm thinking of it because, you know, I have a friend that we serve together and I, I was talking to him this morning or, or yesterday and um, talking about recovery because he knows I'm in, in recovery. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to slow down a little bit. And I'm like, bro, I'm like, slowing, you'll slow down for a minute. And then one day it's just gonna it'll just speed right back up again, you know. Like for me, I have the mindset that I drink, I die. Next question: There's no, you know, there's no. Oh, I'm gonna try it one more time, you know. Because one day I was I was moved to New Jersey and um, I was heading I was um, chairing a meeting and a young kid sat next to me. And a young, really young kid, twenty one years old, and he's like, "You know what? tomorrow's my birthday or today's my birthday. I'm gonna go out for one more." Oof. And uh, and they found him with a needle in his arm that night. And I'm like, uh, you know, so many people think that you know relapse has is a part of recovery. And I'm like, it does not have to be a part of recovery. So talk to us about, you know, after that seven days, what did you do? Because I'm sure just going cold Turkey and not doing, putting any work in, you really can't start to get clean. You know, I appreciate that. I didn't have a lot of
1: the resources that most people have. I, I actually, after that seven days made a commitment. And, and this is my seventh day. I had a conversation with God and I told him, Hey, I, I'm not calling the shots here. I, obviously, over the last seven days, I've realized you do. But if you give me an opportunity to walk out of this bathroom, I'll I'll be a changed man. I'll do things different. I'll put back. I'll give back to the community. Or you need to end my life right now because I don't think I can go another for 12 minutes. You know, live feeling like this. And I, I, at that point in time, I think that was my humility, finally talking to him. And he gave me an opportunity to get up. And from that moment, I just, I, I changed my life. I didn't, I didn't start at that point in time going to AA because it wasn't a thing. It wasn't until I talked to, I was working as assistant principal in in a local junior high that my principal had a daughter who was in recovery. We shared our stories and that was kind of my first invitation into the 12 step and, and, and work in that and, and the, the, the rooms I'll yeah. say.
0: And, and I, you know, and I tell a lot of people, you know, um, not following the 12 steps got me thrown out of my house. Following the 12 steps got me into my own house. So, you know, Oof. but you know, But, you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, um, you know, the steps are, you know, you have to work the steps and, you know, and and some of the steps are tough. It's not easy, you know, step four and five, you know, when you have to tell somebody all the dirty, grimy crap you've ever done, you know, it's humbling. But I think that's where the freedom comes because you don't have to um, hold, you know, you don't have to carry that rucksack anymore. You could finally put the rucksack and duffel back down. You know what I mean. So you're you're
1: one hundred percent right. My healing, my healing began when I started sharing my story. When I I compare it like it was a secret, right? And we all we all understand in recovery that we are as sick as our secrets. What we hide, we can't heal from. And so I felt like I had this massive monster under my bed. So I told you that I had addiction as an early childhood. When I was eight years old, I started in pornography. I saw my first Playboy when I was eight years old and it took over my life. So I went a long time in my life repeating a vicious cycle that I didn't understand. Right? I didn't understand the addiction cycle. I didn't understand how it was taking control of my life. And going through this, the remorse and shame and guilt and, and the youth part and looking at pornography and ruining relationships. And it's like, man, something's got to change. And so finally, when I was able to rip that monster out from under my bed and stop feeding it, you know, I was pacifying it by, by not telling anybody it was comfortable for me. Because nobody knew that I had a problem with pornography or masturbation. I mean, how do, you, how do you open that conversation to somebody? Yeah, you know, I look at pornography to masturbate. But what's crazy is once you talk about it, man, it loses power. And you gain power. And so I, I, I'm with you wherever you share your story, share your story. It doesn't matter if it's a church and an AA hall at a convention at school the more you tell it the healthier you become
0: yeah and you know and i think the more times you tell it you know it your mess becomes your message you know and i think that's one thing for me you know from you know doing the podcast and doing all this public speaking i do in my book and all that it's just you know my story may be able to help somebody because you know I I found, you know, I mean, I'm only a ninth grade dropout, so I'm I'm no professional at anything. But, you know, all the people that I've talked to and doctors and psychologists on the show, you know, usually when an adult acts out, it's usually because of trauma, sometimes between his age of three and 13. And then if you add alcohol, if you add first responder stuff to the mix and or you add military to the mix and you add war. You know, nobody tells you how to get out of that perfect storm unless somebody else has been in that perfect storm. You know, that's why I think like when I used to go speak out at jails or rehabs, if you go to speak at a rehab and you've never had a problem with alcohol or drugs, they can (laughs) smell it out a minute. You know, they can smell your BS. So I think that's something that me and you can do. You know, we not you know, we can go into a rehab or go into a jail or, you know, go down to the streets. and and talk to kids because we know what they're going through and they'll listen to somebody that's been there and done that, you know? Oh, 100%. Yeah.
1: And you know, what's interesting is I have a lot of people that are like, Hey, I want to share my story, but it's not, it's not as compelling as yours. And I just look at them and said, how do you know, you know, my story resonates with some people, but not for everybody. And so your story might be that you, you might add, your version to somebody's process of growth, and so tell your story. If if I could share one thing with people out there, is tell it. You know, stop hiding it, and, and you'll automatically feel
0: the difference in your own recovery. Yep. I mean, then we're also you're also going to get to certain. You know, there's certain people who say, "Well, you know, I'm not. I don't have any addictions." Now, to be honest with you, and you know, I've actually had this talk at a at the kitchen table at like Thanksgiving and Christmas, everybody is addicted to something. And if somebody says they're not addicted to something, I'm going to call BS because the average person looks at their phone 400 times a day. So if that's not an addiction right there, but you know, some people are addicted to money. Some people are addicted to sex. Some people are addicted to relationships. So everybody is addicted to something. So I think it just, you just have, you know, when people are just saying I, I could relate, you know, cause like in, in a program, you, you, when a pro, when a, when you go to speaker meetings, I love speaker meetings. Um, but, you know, some people you're going to relate to and some people you're not going to relate to and that's okay. You just take what you can use and, you know, let everything else go, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I like that. I like that. You know, as I was, I was going to say, tell somebody to put their phone away for a week. And then see how they see how they start detoxing and withdrawing from not having their phone. So you're right; everybody's got some type of addiction. the The difference is there's a there's a huge difference between a substance abuse addiction and a behavior addiction. The problem is most people see the substance abuse; they
0: don't see the behavior addiction. Yeah, yeah, and but you know, then there's also people that might have known you, and and you know, during that ten year time. And you know they hear you speak, and they're, and they're like, "I didn't know you were going through that. I didn't know you were an addict. You know what I mean?" So some people, sometimes it's the closest people around you that either don't know or don't want to admit that you're an addict. You know what I mean? Richard, that's that is
1: spot on. I'm going through that right now with my own family. So I, I'm my oldest sibling that I believe is. She's 52. My youngest is in his young 30s. And I have siblings that said, you're, you're not an addict. You you didn't have an addiction. I was gone out of the house working as a police officer, seeing them twice a year, you know? And your family, usually you try to hide it from them the most. And so so how do you bring those conversations up? I, I would love to hear it because... I was too shameful to talk to my, my family and let them know, Hey, guess what? I'm wrapped up in addiction. I need help, but, but I don't know where to
0: turn. Yeah. And, you know, and I guess that's why in addiction circles, you know, from, you know, from Thanksgiving to new year's, it's known as hurricane season. (laughs) You know, that's when most people, um, you know, they go out and, or they relapse because they don't know how to deal with the family issues. You know, if, you, if you're a young kid or young, young lady trying to stay sober around Christmas and Thanksgiving and everybody's breaking out the wine and the champagne, you know, it's, it's hard. And 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 then how do you tell people, you know, like for me, I guess if you've been in recovery a while you really don't really don't really care what anybody else thinks about it. But, like, if I go out for dinner and, you know, and the waitress says, you know, can I get you a drink? And I'm like, no, I'm allergic to alcohol. I break out in handcuffs, you know. (laughs) So, but, you know, but it's harder for a younger or a person that's new in recovery to start, you know, to say, you know, I can't. I have a problem. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because we we're not
1: allowed to be weak. Isn't this the same reason that PTSD continues isn't that the same reason that we continued our addictions because it's secretive we i mean i as a police officer i remember seeing some gruesome scenes and i would go to briefing the next day and my sergeant hey so i know you went on the scene yesterday how's everybody doing and then you begin to look around the room and you look at the guys that have been on 20 years and they're like no we're good and so, of course, out of fear, you raise your hand and say, I'm, I'm good, too. I'm good, too. But inside, you're burning up. You're struggling. You just saw a, a baby die. And you can't tell me that doesn't have an effect on you. But because of that element of privacy, um, I don't want anybody else to know. I don't want them to have to carry this. We internalize it we hide it and then until the point we can't any longer and we end up taking our own lives or it turns into just self-destruction.
0: Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, because you know, the military and the police officers, you know, we, we all, pre- we pretty much are the same people, just different uniforms, you know, like my, my ex father-in-law, he was a Vietnam vet. And um, the only time he would ever talk about it is when he was around his buddies or when he started drinking but other than that you know he how can you tell you know oh you know we we took out a whole village how, what kind of person that's you know that's working working as a, a cashier at, at Walmart is going to understand that oh wait a minute you had to take out a whole village with napalm you know you know what I'm, so I'm sure that's the same thing with police officers because like you can you and your partner can talk together but when you go and talk to your next door neighbor Joe that's cutting the grass, you know, you can't really say, Yeah, you know we had this quadruple homicide last night. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because they're not gonna yeah. understand, and they, and they do, and they're not gonna understand you and your feelings. And then when you don't have that any and that that partner to talk and talk to anymore, that's when I think the shit hits the fan. When you're sitting in your you. own head, you know, like they say, you know, you don't want to live in your your head rent free, you know. And, and I was scared to be in my head, Richard. I, I didn't like being there. I wasn't comfortable there. So talk to us now because, you know, we heard about all the tragedy. Now talk to us about the triumph. Love it, man. So- everybody, you know, everybody loves the comeback story. You know, I tell everybody, you know, if if Rocky didn't win the title in Rocky 2, there would never been a Rocky 3. So everybody loves the comeback story. Tell us yours.
1: Yeah. I, I, I'm. A, thank you for for sharing that. You know when I when I started realizing my when the principal noticed, hey, you, you need to learn more about recovery. I went on a journey. Uh, went to Prescott, learned about recovery, brought back a program up to the White Mountains in Arizona, and I actually started a inpatient or an outpatient treatment center for men and women who struggling with addiction. I ran that for five and a half years. And, and loved it. Best experience of my life. Helped some amazing humans. And I realized right there at the end that I was missing my, my, the mark a little bit that a lot of the men and women that were coming in were not um, people that I could, I could any longer really understand. You know, an a 18-year-old kid coming in on heroin, been on heroin for four years. I mean, it's hard for me to be in the room and and be empathetic and understand what he's going through. But I can do that with the police officer. I can do that with the first responder. Mm-hmm. And so what I did is I, I left that, that company, left my, I, I, I basically traded out and moved uh, a, a few miles away, a few hours away and started an online recovery center type situation. So I took all the information that I, that I developed over five and a half years And broke it down and and put the best curriculum possible together. And the reason I did that is because police officers, military, firefighters, nurses, doctors, all those people and first responders, they cannot, if they're struggling with addiction, they can't leave their work for 30 days. They can't leave for six months to get treatment. So what I I wanted to do is I wanted to bridge that gap. I wanted to say, hey, you still need treatment. You still need some skills. You still need some tools and you still need a team. We're going to meet together every day and we're going to work through this. So we're going to meet, have meetings. When you're off shift, you're going to come and we're going to do one-on-ones. We're going to have conversations, but you don't have to leave your house and you don't have to talk to your boss about treatment. Because if you leave for thirty days, you have to tell your boss. Guess what, guys? I'm going to rehab, and now that's a
0: black mark on you. Especially you're, if you're an, like a nurse or a doctor, forget it. Your career is over. You know, especially being around you know opioids and all that stuff, and you're, you're, your your career is pretty much over at that point.
1: Yeah, there for sure. And so that's what I did. Is I I went ahead and started a program where I meet I meet men and women all day online, work a recovery program with them. it's called Chase the Vase. And uh now, what is that? Chase the Vase it, it's a story. It's about a World War One veteran that was wounded, that was uh beat up, shot up on, as a as an as a warrior. You know, and when he came home he wanted to work for a a boss. He wanted to work for a company that uh, met him in the middle. You know, he was disabled, he was struggling with 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 this, and so he applied for a job and his boss put him on a quest to test of the blue vase. And basically he had to overcome obstacles to show his resolve and, and dedication to secure ultimately at the end a blue vase to deliver to his boss. And the blue vase for us and recovery is i want my sobriety is my blue vase that it's proof that i'm that i'm sober you know some of us are chasing a, a million dollar job that could be their blue vase or a a relationship that builds them that could be a blue vase so there's always something out there that we're chasing of improvement and so we call it the blue
0: vase i love that you know now like I was interviewed I do a lot. I'm interviewed on a lot of podcasts and, you know, I was telling, you know, one of the gentlemen that interviewed me that, you know, I was dry from 1989 till the morning of 2001 uh, till the morning of September 11th, 2001. And 2000, the night of 2000 of September 11th, 2001 is the day I became sober. And there's a difference between being dry and being sober in my opinion, you know, totally, you know, you know, and I tell everybody, everybody asks, well, what's the difference for me is I can only talk for me. The difference is when you're dry, it means you're an asshole that doesn't drink (laughs) when you're sober. You're just, you're, you try not to be that asshole anymore and you don't drink so that, you know, that's after September 11th, you know, that's when I got sober and started living the sober life. So talk to us a little bit about between being dry and being sober in your opinion.
1: Well, I love that. I I, I I put it in different terms. I think there's a difference between being in recovery and being in, being sober. Anybody can be sober. Those are the guys like you see that are in the AA halls and they have 24 years of sobriety. They're white knuckling it and they are just assholes. Right? You do anything wrong, you read something wrong and they chip at you and they get mad at you. Right? You We've all seen these guys. They are sober. They're not drinking today, but they are miserable humans, (laughs) right? And we've seen them. Mm -hmm. I know a a few of them. I know a few of them. Yeah, yeah. And there's a transition that happens in our lives where we enter into recovery where it becomes much easier and more important to be in recovery than ever to touch the bottle again.
0: You know, and I love that, you know, like I used to go to a lot of meetings and then, you know, after a while it was like, all right, you know, I'm going to the same meeting for six years in a row. The same guys are there every week, same problems. It's like, okay, you're not drinking, but you're not married. You don't have a house. You don't have a job. You don't have a home. So what's the sense of not drinking and not having a life? You know what I'm saying? Man, you know what I'm saying? What's the sense of not drinking if you're not gonna have you know, because in the in the big book they talk about the promises, and I want the promises, you know. So you know, I think there's more to just life than not drinking or using, you know what I mean? Yeah, they well, they actually forget how to live,
1: and and that's a problem, and we see those, so and I and Those are the people that scare us off at meeting one. We go into the room and it's like there, we hear them and I've got 40 years. And you're like, oh man, if I'm like that in 40 years, I should start drinking again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's the, it's the, it's the other people that keep bringing us back. The people that
0: reach out to us and show humanity. And for me, you know, like because I'm, I'm on Clubhouse, which is a new app, um, and I, I go to a lot of sobriety rooms. For me, it's the newcomer that keep, they call it keeping me green. You know, I can remember my days of going my first meeting, going in a deep dungeon in a church, you know, scared, still drunk, eating stale cookies and, and drinking awful coffee. But you know, it's the new people that keep me coming back. You know what I'm trying to say? So oh, think, yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of times, you know, the as they call them the old timers, they forget where they came from. You know?
1: Yeah, and, and I'm glad you said that. I love Clubhouse. I I, I actually run a show with a another recovering sober uh, young lady named Angela Pugh. We do it on Sunday mornings, and and, and I. You know, Johan Johari said it best. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection, right? And and it doesn't matter where you're connecting. It doesn't matter if you're at that dungeon, as long as you're connecting with people who lift you, right? It doesn't matter if you walk out, if you're on a clubhouse and you just get to hear it or do you and I, where there's an automatic connection because we have similarities in our life. We both struggle. We've all been there and we can understand it. So you have to find those people, those old, angry, sober, alcoholics. They're not our tribe, you know. They're there. They're an example of strength and hope that they can do it for years. I can do it, but man, let's get it to let's get to that point the right way.
0: So tell us, you know, how do we, if we want to get in touch with you? Um, how do we find you? What do you have going on today? And, um, you know, what are some of the things that that people that are in your audience can um, can get together with you?
1: Yeah, they can find me. I'm on on Facebook. My name is Brock Bevel or Chase the Vase. I'm on Instagram. Same tags at Brock Bevel or Chase the Vase. My email is chasing ing the vase at gmail.com. I have a I have a challenge out there that I do with military police. It's, it's at W.W.W chase the vase challenge.com. I have a, a new seven day challenge that coming up next week called fight like David. And it's where I'm going to help, uh, other people find, uh, find some transformation, find some recovery. So, you know, I, I believe Richard, we're all doing the same thing. I just want people, if, if, if what I have helps you, then I want to be there for you. But if something that, that Richard has, man, Whatever you do, find somebody in your life that can that, is, that has it, that has done it, right? Find that guru who can teach you and, and show you the way of sobriety. Because I, I had a conversation this week um, on one of my podcasts. I, I do one with uh, an ex-football player and a therapist called uh, Agents of Recovery, and, and my podcast is Chase the Base. But one question that we posed was, do you think it's more work to be in recovery or in active addiction?
0: Wow, that <laughs> that you know right. th- that's a hell of a question right there. That's something you could have five or six shows on. Just, yes, that, that question right there.
1: So I'm gonna pu- I'm gonna throw that out to you, Richard. Maybe the next time we talk, we hash that out. But but when you think about it. Uh, they're both hard. Yeah. You know, that grind of being an addict
0: is rough. And unfortunately the grind of being an addict, it's, you know, it's a 24 hour day, seven day a week job, you know? And uh, so I, 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 yeah, that's, that's a hard one. I would love to come on your show and be able to hang out on your podcast also. Yeah. Before we hang out, I'm setting that up for sure. You know, and like you said, you know, um, Recovery, um, you know, I'm a. I love to read. I'm a big self development, self improvement guy. I'm always reading, and um, and one of one of the books that I that I just finished reading was by Grant Cardone, and it was called The Ten X. And the one thing I got out of the whole book was that you know, if you guys are listening to this um, from now on, from this moment on. Uh, whatever happens in your life is your fault. It may not be how somebody, you know, if something happened in your life, but how you react to it is your fault. So once you become self-aware, that's when I think your whole life changes. When you become self-aware and the things that you do, you know, I we may have, me and you, we may have had bad childhood, good childhood. You know, we may have had bad things happen to us. But, once you realize that you can't use that stuff as excuses anymore to put the drugs and the alcohol down your throat, that's when your life really starts to change when you take ownership of your life. you know what I mean? Richard, I hope people, I hope this is recorded that where people will listen because that right there
1: is foundational truths for healing. If you, Can't and won't take ownership of your shit. Sorry to swear, but I mean, that's, that's of your addiction. You will never heal because we can blame it on everything around us. Right. Our childhood trauma, the time that I was molested, uh, pornography, or I I had a terrible upbringing or I've been run over. Guess what? Yeah. It happened to you, but now you got a story, and, and and that's where we that's where the growth happens when you are self aware. You say, "Hey, I'm
0: bigger than any of
1: this." Here we go. Let's make these changes.
0: And you know, for people that are listening to this, if you guys go back a couple episodes, um, I well, actually, some of the episodes haven't been released yet. Um, I talked to a couple psychologists and psychotherapists, and they're talking about how there's a difference between post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth. So, you know, like my, one of my mentors is Mr. Ed, Milet, And uh, one thing he says is, you know, that Mm. things don't happen to you. They happen for you and everything is a teachable moment. So when you start thinking about life like that, that, and start thinking that, you know, whatever happened in your past, that's going to become your message so you know starts with taking out those old negative tapes tapes you see how old i am tapes i don't even think they make tapes anymore but you know you take out those old files and replace them with new files you know what i'm trying to say absolutely rewire that yeah i love it so okay last question i ask everybody you know um and I get, I ask a thousand people, I get a thousand different answers. Uh, you know, we still we're I'm in New Jersey, so we're still under COVID lockdown. So uh, we're we live in a crazy world. You know, we have grandparents homeschooling children. You know, we got a lot of people here got laid off. So we got parents driving Uber just to pay the bills. So if I ask the average person to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody that's listening to this podcast to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. So if some with addiction issues, what can they do in the next 24 hours to start to get help?
1: Who, Richard, I don't think I've ever been asked this
0: question. That's why they call me Joe Rogan of GI Joes.
1: Yeah, I don't want to just throw it out there. So give me one second to think on this because cause, cause I, I, I know what my, my textbook answer would be. <laughs> but what, you know, was here we go. Let me give you this one. This is what I've learned. But I just learned it last month on a podcast with, with, with a good man, a good buddy of mine. And he talked to me and taught me how about cold showers. I know that sounds crazy, but I don't know if you've heard of uh, what's his name, uh, Wuhan Hoff, I believe it is. Kind of got his, his, got him started there. He's been doing this every day. I started, I started about thirty something days ago, and I wanted to do something to shock my system. Okay, I, I love, I love challenges. I did the David Goggins four, four, forty eight last month. And, and, I, and
0: by the way. I actually um, interviewed uh, one of Goggin's um, guys that went to, went to buds with him and one of his, his best friends. And hopefully we're going to have David on the show in the next couple of weeks,
1: man. You, if you do, you're a lucky man. He's, he's in my top, he's in my top five to sit and have a conversation with. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. I just think he's, I think he's got that it factor. I think he has that extreme, you know, that, that character we talk about, but, but, what I would do is I'd challenge somebody to do something that shocks their system. Uh, addiction has done that enough in our lives. So in order for us to change, usually we, we get nervous on the small things because we don't see an immediate effect, right? We, 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 we enroll in college and we don't see growth for four years. We don't see that, that reward for four years. So taking cold showers is an immediate change and shock to your body. It helps with depression. It helps get your blood flowing. It helps you sleep. It acts as a caffeine. It dumps your endorphins. So what I would do is is start doing something bigger that you've probably never done before. Well, wow, so that's you know, that's
0: and I love that. You know, like I just started doing, I don't know if you heard a guy named a gentleman, his name is Andy Frazella. Oh, he yeah. Had, program called 75 hard and i've been doing everything but the cold shower so now because you said it now i gotta try it
1: oh richard i'm I'm gonna challenge you brother i'm really um i will attach this guy's name i got his book too dang it i just don't have i don't want to make a lot of noise to go find it but uh, i i'm in the process of reading his book and it is it is
0: amazing yeah definitely all right so um guys if you're if you're listening to this and you're struggling um, reach out to either one of us you know we, we do I do this I don't make any money on my podcast um, it's all and the money I do make from my t-shirts and merchandise everything goes back to help veterans and first responders so if you if you got anything out of this please leave a comment um, definitely check out um, some of the stuff you know chase the vase I'm gonna be checking it out because I you know, hopefully me and you can do some collaboration down the road, you know, cause it's all about saving lives. And I think, you know, we're in the same lockstep. So, and guys, if you love coffee, definitely check out, get shit done coffee. It's actually coffee that in the can that you can put in the fridge and it tastes amazing. So thank you for, for uh, Frank for uh, the get shit done coffees. Um So brother, I want to thank you, Brock so much. Um, And everybody knows when I do a podcast um, with somebody that the relationship just begins today. So hopefully, um, you know, we can get much closer. and Maybe someday I can come out to Arizona and hang out sometime. Or or if you're ever in New Jersey, come out and stay at the house and stuff, you know? Bro, I would be totally honored. Well, God bless you, and and I love everything you're doing. And this will be going out in a couple weeks, but I'm sure we're going to be in contact within the next couple of days because I want to get involved, whatever you're doing. I, I love it. Thank you so much for having me and, and
1: God bless.
0: All right. Have an amazing weekend. Yes, sir. brother. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.